This episode of Ask Science Mike was brought to you by Journeybox Media. Journeybox Media makes engaging short films for the church. Learn more by visiting journeyboxmedia.com. Sunscreen, breaking up and making changes that last. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. And we are just one month away from the launch of my new book, Finding God in the Waves. If you haven't pre-ordered yet, there's all kind of bonuses you can get, a chance to win a one-on-one call with me, learn more at findinggodinthewaves.com. But for now, let's get it started. Our first question on Ask Science Mike this week came in via Patreon. Uh, One of the rewards people get when they make the show possible by contributing on Patreon is you can get a guaranteed question on Ask Science Mike. And even though we have several hundred patrons, people don't do it very often. But here we go. Uh, Really excited that Patrick Klein from Denver sent in a patron question this week. So we'll get started with it. Hey, Mike. Is there any correlation between where people land on the Enneagram and what style or type of humor they might find more funny than people who land elsewhere? As an example, I'm a five observer, so does my preference for dry, sarcastic, quick wit humor mirror my desire to intellectualize what makes me laugh versus another who might enjoy the lighthearted silly jokes, which I do enjoy sometimes? Is there any science or correlation between the two? Looking forward to meeting you during the liturgist gathering in Denver, unless I don't meet you, and in that case, hello and goodbye. First of all, Patrick, there's a 100% chance you'll meet me at the liturgist gathering in Denver, unless you just don't want to meet me. The reason we do the liturgist gathering is so we can meet <laughs> the people who listen to the show, because you're invariably interesting, fun people to be around, and thoughtful, and the liturgist gathering is also, we put those on so you can meet each other. So there's like this this ruse where we try to put on a compelling day and a half event with like, you know, music from Michael and Lisa Gunger and a string quartet and really interesting discussions and teachings, but really it's just an excuse to rent a room and all hang out together. <laughs> and I'm super excited about Denver. That's actually going to be the week my book launches, so... I will know how the book is doing for the first time ever because it will actually be out. Uh, But anyway, uh, let's actually talk about your question. Interestingly enough, on the Enneagram, the first episode of the Liturgist podcast for season three is going to be on the Enneagram. And we're just we're closing in on that. That's going to be coming out a little bit later in August. Um, I think August... uh, uh, so August 23rd, I think, will be the day season three starts. Uh, and so we're, we have a whole episode on the Enneagram. It's like a like a two-hour episode. It's one of the longest liturgist podcasts we've ever done. But it's because so many people have asked us about the Enneagram. Uh, and 
We'll talk a little bit about it right now. The Enneagram is this personality typing tool. Uh, if you've heard of Myers-Briggs, or Myers-Briggs, excuse me, that's one personality typing system. The Enneagram is another, only the Enneagram has more spiritual roots. It's older, uh, and in the Enneagram, everyone uh, is represented by a number, one through nine. It's a pretty dynamic or flexible model in that there's an interplay between your number and your wing and then how you behave in stressful situations versus less stress versus normal. Uh, so it's a pretty complicated system. But because of that, it seems to have a lot of descriptive power. But here's the important thing. In your question, you asked about science or correlation, and the Enneagram is not a scientific model. It is a spiritual model. It's a tool for introspection, but it's not based on like clinical research or empirical data. It's really built more on observation and frankly, speculation. Only recently have people even tried to apply any sort of psychological or clinical thinking to the Enneagram, and that would be typified by like the Rizzo-Hudson approach to the Enneagram. Um, but there's nothing, there's really no science or, or clinical studies behind the Enneagram at all. It's just a thing a lot of people find useful for introspection and personal growth. And it's a, it's a framework you can use to have common language to talk about your personality and your personal experience. Now, dry sarcastic humor can be related to a defense mechanism called intellectualization, which is uh, a tendency to take apart our feelings by uh, using the analytical part of our brain to think things through and, and in doing so kind of shut down the emotional parts of our brain. It can also come from cynicism, and we've talked about cynicism before in the program, or a simple frontal lobe bias. People who have more active frontal lobes in some science have been shown to have a drier or more sarcastic sense of humor. So there is a correlation in brain basis. Now you could say, well, probably fives tend to have a frontal lobe bias. That's why they're fives. And that would be an interesting conjecture. But to my knowledge, there has not been a single study involving brain imaging and the Enneagram. So that would be something we could only speculate on. That said, I am fascinated with the Enneagram I think it's a ton of fun. I think it's interesting to examine yourself and, and contemplate your experience, but it is not a scientific model. It's not a clinical model. Uh, it's something a little more useful than a party trick, basically, in my opinion, which could be wrong. But I, I am quite certain that there's just not a lot of clinical research around the Enneagram. Hey, Mike. My name's Allie, and I live in Baltimore, and I have a couple of questions for you that relate to the sun and our health as humans. Um, so conventional wisdom tells us that wearing sunscreen is beneficial for protecting against skin cancer, premature aging, and other different health risks. But at the same time, I've recently been hearing that chemicals in sunscreen might actually be more damaging to our health than exposure to the sun itself. So... My first question is that I'm curious to know if you have any insights or know of any studies that speak to that topic and which one is really true. 
Um, and then the second part of my question is something that's a little bit more personally important to me. I'm curious whether using a tanning bed or other form of artificial sunlight, like a sun lamp or UV lamp, has any scientifically proven benefits for treating seasonal affective disorder. I've been living with depression and anxiety for about 15 years. And while medication really helps, it's significantly more effective for me in the summer months than in the times of the year when it's darker and colder out. Um, with summer winding to a close and the days getting shorter where I live, I'm starting to be filled with this sense of dread at the thought of losing the mental health benefits that the summer months have afforded me. I asked my psychiatrist if he would recommend going to a tanning salon, and he told me that it really doesn't have any proven benefits or that it really wouldn't help. But I have gone in the past, and I felt like it did help. I'm curious if this was just the placebo effect taking place because I expected it to help, or even just because it's nice to get warm in a sunbed when it's cold out in the winter, or if there are any studies that show that using tanning beds and UV lights can have a benefit for those of us who suffer, suffer from mental health issues in the winter. If it is just the placebo effect, are there any other scientifically proven things that I can do during the darker months to bolster my own mental health? Thank you for everything that you do. Your work means a lot to me and has really helped me in my own life and growth as a person. I look forward to hearing your answers. Well, this is a fantastic question. And even though I had a pretty good idea of where I was going with the answer, um, it took a surprisingly long time to fact check my answer and make sure what I was saying was backed with data. So really good question. I hope people pay attention because as the summer months uh, go away and we enter the darker seasons. There's some good science here. And also, man, I've learned more about sunscreen and using sunscreen than I ever knew. And even me, who is really cautious about sun exposure, I learned a lot about how to properly use sunscreen. So this is going to be one of the more not only scientifically backed answers on the program, but really pragmatic and useful. This is great stuff. So here's, let's start with the sunscreen issue. Some recent studies has shown that um, some of the nanoparticles uh, or chemicals in sunscreens, there's basically two types of sunscreen. One type of sunscreen is uh, focused on scattering UV light away from your skin, primarily using little particles of metal, in this case, nanoparticles, which is more of a marketing term than a science term, but it just means very, very small metal particles, or absorption, chemicals that actually absorb UV light before it gets to your skin, where your skin would absorb it and do DNA damage in the process. So some recent studies have shown that either nanoparticles or some of the chemicals in sunscreen, depending on what type of sunscreen you're talking about, can have adverse health effects in laboratory animals, and that can include hormonal changes and some cancers. That's a big deal. Absolutely, that's a big deal. And this is a valid claim. This is real science. This is not a conspiracy theory. But there are some important caveats. Here's why. Some people have taken these studies, especially alternative health advocates or holistic health advocates, and they are now claiming that um, 
sunscreen is more damaging than sun exposure or more dangerous. And some are even saying that sun exposure does not cause skin cancer and that you need vitamin D and sun exposure is good. You shouldn't get a burn uh, just because it hurts, but it doesn't cause skin cancer. I want to be really clear. These people are wrong. They are completely off the wall, nowhere near correct, and people will die from getting that advice and taking it seriously. The sun causes skin cancer. The sun causes skin cancer. We'll talk more about that later in the answer. Melanoma is a big deal, and the UV light hitting your skin from the sun penetrates enough and into your cells that it will, uh, it's ionizing radiation. It's the bad kind, and it can cause damage to your DNA, and if that damage is not repaired, it increases your risk for cancer. Also, your risk of skin cancer is cumulative over time. Every second you're in the sun contributes over your life to an increased risk for skin cancer. And some people like me, who are gingers, are a thousand times more likely to get skin cancer at the same amount of exposure as someone with darker skin. This is a serious issue. And if you're on a website that says the sun does not cause skin cancer, close that website it's not a source worth reading. I'm not usually that dismissive of people and their perspectives, but this is dangerous. So now let's talk about the actual science in these studies. Uh, these very small scatter particles, these nanoparticles, the idea is that they can get through your skin and then start to collect in organs like your liver with unknown or detrimental effects. Now, what I've read, uh, scientists and experts don't think this is likely. Uh, these studies have involved typically injections of nanoparticles. So obviously it's going to get through your skin. And that's a perfectly valid test case to see what happens when these particles get in your body. And in those cases, they're finding they collect in the liver and other internal organs which we don't like to see. But in normal cases, it is unlikely they're going to get through your skin unless you have a wound or a scratch or a cut. Or would eczema do it? Like what skin conditions perforate the skin enough for these nanoparticles to get through? And that's actually not clear. That's unknown today. That's a question mark in science. So if you want to be safe and you want to use a scatter-based sunscreen as opposed to an absorption-based sunscreen, just go with a more traditional or older formulation that doesn't use nanoparticles. Now, how do you know? Well, if you're using a scatter-based sunscreen, it's going to look a little bit robotic. It's going to be very thick. It's going to be reflective. It's going to look metallic. And those larger particles are not going to go into your skin. So that's one option. Now let's talk about absorption sunscreens. The idea here is that some of the chemicals used in these sunscreens can cause cancer or hormonal disruption. And let's talk about these studies first. These experiments involved very, very high dosages of these chemicals 
comparable to about 30 years of daily sunscreen use at one time. And the chemicals were either injected, inhaled, or ingested by animals, not applied to the skin. Again, the testing here is designed to determine what happens when the chemical gets in your body, but is not testing if the chemical gets in your body. And that's a critical distinction. So this is what can happen. People take a valid scientific study and misapply the results because they fail to look at the methodology of the experiment and the intent of the experiment. What is this experiment designed to test? But this is actually instructive, and here's why. We have spray-on sunscreens now. And if you spray this mist and inhale it, you have just inhaled a dosage of these chemicals into your body in a way that was not intended. So in terms of lotions that you spread on your body, what I'm seeing in the science is we don't believe there's a significant risk, even if you're using a sunscreen that uses one of these these chemicals that the studies say are problematic or or potentially troubling. Uh, But if you use a spray-on sunscreen, you want to be very, very careful not to inhale any of that mist. And when you spray your head, your face, your neck, your ears, anything around there, you want to spray it on your hands and then apply it to your face. And that's going to mitigate or dramatically lower any potential risk of these chemicals getting into your body. Now let's for a second assume the worst, that these chemicals really are carcinogens and that they do get in the body. We're making an assumption here. This is not what these experiments say. We have decades of public health data on sunscreen use. And what do we find? It's not even close. Sunscreen is much, 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 much less likely to cause skin cancer than ultraviolet rays from sunlight. And it's not even close. It's not even close. Going out in the sun without sunscreen carries a much higher risk of cancer than going out with sunscreen on. Open and shut, take it to the bank. The science is clear. Now, if you want to be cautious, here's kind of the best sort of cautious approach to sunscreen use. Go ahead and avoid nanoparticle sunscreens altogether. Stick with uh, lotions SPF 30 or higher, and be careful if you have a cut, rash, or other skin irritation. If you do use spray on sunscreen, don't spray your face, head, or neck. Spray it on your hands and then rub it on. And by the way, use more than you think you do. With spray on, it's good to use two or three coats. With lotions, it's important to apply every two hours. Sunscreen is chronically underapplied. And if you're swimming or toweling or any sort of a friction or abrasion happens on your skin, you're going to need to apply even more often. Now, that's a pain, and people don't like to do that. So consider sun-safe clothing as an option. That's my own personal approach to sun exposure, and it works really well with absolutely no chemicals at all. Uh, if you look for uh, clothing that is uh, UPF rated, that's an actual standard, where they measure the amount of ultraviolet light that moves through the fabrics, you can get high UPF fabrics, and I wear a hat with a, a three-inch brim all the way around it, 
I wear a long-sleeved, collared, high UPF shirt, and I typically wear uh, long pants that are a cooling fabric and closed-toed shoes. <laughs> Isn't that nuts? That's why I look like at the beach. But then I just put a little sunscreen on my hands, put a little bit on my face in case the angle of the sun gets under my hat. I'm limiting the amount of sun exposure I have and the chemicals. I swim and stuff like that. Uh, why? I don't want melanoma. I would rather look silly at the beach than have melanoma and potentially lose my life. Uh, now, here's the second part of the question. Seasonal effect disorder. It's a two-part question. <laughs> it's a long answer. This is a little quicker. Really clear science. Tanning does not treat seasonal affective disorder. Uh, it's ultraviolet light and... Uh, seasonal affective disorder has nothing to do with UV light. It's all about visible light. Now, you went to a tanning bed. You felt better. Why? Probably some placebo effect. Probably sitting in a calm, quiet space and resting. Lifted your mood. I think it's that simple. Uh, but the bottom line is tanning is really bad for you. You should not tan. <laughs> the science is clear. It's a skin cancer risk. Now, but you say, well, I want, I want to combat these shorter days. I want to help myself feel good. Great. We have a way to do that. 25 minutes in a light box. So you get a, a small enclosed area uh, with with white walls that can literally be a box. And you get uh, 10,000 lux of white light in that box. Not UV light, not a, not a UV bulb, but a broad spectrum white bulb. At least 10,000 lux for 25 minutes is going to help your brain uh, produce the chemicals that you get in the longer days. Now, if you can't afford a light box or that's too much trouble, science has shown that uh, watching your diet and exercising are both incredibly helpful in combating the symptoms of seasonal affective disorder. So a light box, exercise, and a diet. Really effective. Tanning, not effective, and actually dramatically increases your risks of skin cancers. So I don't recommend it. Fantastic question. Thank you so much. Our next question came in via email and it reads, Hey Mike, I really love and appreciate all the work you do. This podcast and the Liturgist podcast has been a real lifeline to me and have helped me to make sense of my experience. My question for today is related to the upcoming election. I was wondering if you could give us a scientific breakdown of the election and voting process for the presidential election. We are always told to vote, but it often seems as if the Electoral College is really what decides it. We also hear talk of red states, blue states, and swing states. I guess my most basic question is, does our vote truly matter? I want to believe it does, but it is hard not to be cynical about it. Thanks again. Looking forward to your answer. Well, let's start here. I understand the cynicism. I really understand political cynicism. If there's anything we can agree on as a country, it's that it is very reasonable to believe uh, politically cynical. I was watching the news this morning. Uh, it was CNN who, um, you know, I think tries hardest of all the networks to be without bias, uh, and in doing so has this huge centrism bias. But anyway, they were talking about Trump versus Clinton, and they had these talking heads on about that. And to the anchor's credit, he was working really hard to 
get specific answers to policy questions from these talking heads, and all they offered him was like sound bites and political spin. And it disgusted me so much I turned the TV off. So I get the cynicism. Uh, Our two major parties often seem like parody. (laughs) It's so ridiculous. But you asked a question, so I will answer it. And only after I offer this disclaimer, I am not political science Mike. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a historian. I am stepping outside of my expertise to answer this question. I have thoroughly researched it. I've included links to additional resources on AskScienceMike.com so you can check my answer. But there's a real risk that I'm going to be less accurate on this question than most of what I say on the show because I'm speaking outside of my expertise. So let's start with the Electoral College, which is a weird name for something that is not a college. Instead, the Electoral College is a temporary political body elected by the states that elects the president and the vice president. And it's set into the Constitution how this works. Each state gets electors. Those are people that get to cast a vote in the Electoral College. You get one elector for each representative your state has in the House of Representatives and two for each senator. And the District of Columbia gets three electors so that they get to weigh in on the the presidency. Today, that leads to 538 total electors. And for someone to be declared president of the United States, they have to get at least 270 electoral college votes. And you're right. They are the ones who legally elect the president and not the popular vote. When you vote, you are not voting for the president. You are voting for an elector who will vote for the president. Isn't that weird? Now, here's something kind of weird. States decide how their electors are allocated. So in most states, the winner of the popular vote gets all the votes of all the electors from that state. But some states fragment their electors, and you can partially take a state. It's pretty rare, but it happens. Now, here's what's even crazier. Electors from states are pledged to vote for the candidate the state party chooses, but the Constitution doesn't explicitly require them to vote for who they're pledged to vote for. Now, some state constitutions require it. But the Constitution of the United States of America doesn't actually require that electors vote for who they are pledged to vote for. In practice, it's what happens. People vote who they're pledged to vote for. Now, mathematically, it's, a, it's extraordinarily feasible that you can lose the national popular vote but still win the Electoral College, even if every elector votes exactly as they are pledged to vote. We saw that in the year 2000 with Bush versus Gore. What happens there is you win by a narrow margin nationally, but you win by smaller margins or lose by narrow margins in key states that have a lot of electoral college votes. In fact, 
you can actually win the presidency just by carrying 13 states and getting no votes anywhere else. That's mathematically possible. It's extremely unfeasible because those states don't have a lot of political affinity together. But in theory, you could become the president by winning 51% of the vote or even 50 point you know, 0.05% of the popular vote in just 13 states. It's nuts. Now, here's why we have it, though. Why do we have such a weird system? Uh, it was a compromise. The founders, some of them wanted the Congress to pick the president and vote for the president, and others wanted a national popular vote. So they built this hybrid model as a compromise that kind of made everyone miserable. <laughs> it wasn't what anyone wanted. And so it got selected. And it's super weird. And I certainly don't think it's ideal, but believe it or not, it actually favors more populous states over less populous ones. And since our most populous states tend to be our most liberal states, the Electoral College actually offers people on the left side of the political spectrum a little bit of a boost in the national presidential election, uh, which is something we don't think about a lot, but that's that's how it works. And it's funny, I, I kind of anecdotally notice that Republicans and Democrats tend to gripe about the Electoral College pretty evenly, uh, but it makes a little bit more sense for Republicans to gripe than Democrats, uh, because Democrats, it, it, Bush v. Gore being an exception, but in general, the Electoral College gives more populous states more influence in electing the president. Okay, so let's talk about swing states. What's a swing state? That is a state in the United States where the two major political parties have very similar levels of support among voters. And swing states are especially uh, noticed by politicians when they have a lot of electoral votes. The two most prominent would be Florida, my home state, and Ohio. Uh, And man, when you live in Florida, you get to see presidential candidates a lot. They really want to carry this state. And it's a true swing state. In the last four elections, both Florida and Ohio have each voted each way 50% of the time. Really true swing states. Uh, So do uh, votes in swing states count more than votes in safe states? Yes. In this system, politicians should pay more attention to Florida or Ohio than other states because my vote as a Floridian carries more weight in affecting the statistical outcome of the presidency than people in smaller states or safe states. Safe states are states that consistently vote for one party. California, you're a huge state with a lot of electoral votes, but you're a safe state. New York, safe state. Texas today is also a safe state, but they're big states, but they're safe. So you hear that and you say, well, that's not fair. Why does Science Mike's vote for president count more than mine? Well, uh, yeah, that's really ridiculous. (laughs) I think a national popular vote makes all the sense in the world. It's not the system we have. But that does not mean your vote doesn't matter. And this is critical. Blocks of voters matter a whole lot. And here's why. Statistically speaking... Older, wealthier, and wider voters, not not wider like more wide, but whiter as in more demographically white, older, wealthier, and whiter voters are much more likely to vote 
which means they're less likely to say their votes don't matter. And because of that, their votes disproportionately determine the outcome of elections and disproportionately shape public policy. When we talk about money and politics, yeah, part of that is currying favors, but why those favors matter? People need the money to buy ads and build organizations to convince people to vote because voting is the only way to hold office in the United States of America. Votes matter. And young people and poorer people vote a lot less often. Now, I have some empathy here. People on the bottom of the income spectrum, it's actually a real challenge to vote. We have all kinds of laws that make it more difficult for them to vote. Their polling places have longer lines and less resources. They tend to face voter harassment, voter disenfranchisement, and they have less um, travel options. They have less income. It's more difficult to get time off of work. So I have a lot of empathy there, but it's still really important that they vote if they can. And young people, especially you know, young, able-bodied people uh, that are higher up on the economic spectrum, it's critical that they vote. Young people are much more progressive than older people, statistically speaking, and they just don't turn out to vote as much. Because when you decide your vote doesn't matter, you just gave public policy to the person who believes that their vote does. I think it's that simple. And we're just talking about the presidency in the in, in the math. Yeah, in the presidency, me as an independent swing state voter in Florida, I have, a, I have a little bit of extra say, but the presidency is not the most important election. It gets all the press. It gets all the social media love, but it doesn't affect your life as much as other votes. What, what votes are important? Congressional votes, Senate and House of Representatives, state and local elections affect your life more than federal elections. They set more policy, and they drive more change, and they draw congressional districts. Listen to this. The president can't set local policies and taxes. The president can't establish leadership of local agencies like the police force. We're talking about police brutality today. The president does not have authority over your local police force. The president can't set congressional districts. The president can't make laws. The president can't declare war. The president can't uh, set local tax rates or neighborhood zoning or housing policy. The things that affect our lives the most happen in Congress, state legislatures, local city councils, elected officials. And your vote matters in those elections. The down-ballot elections and the midterm elections, they don't get the national news. They don't get televised debates, but they affect your life more. Take a few seconds. Google a voting guide for your city, for your district. Learn about the options. Learn about ballot initiatives and amendments. Make informed choices and show up to vote because your vote matters most in the elections that affect you the most. So yeah, let's have a conversation 
about reforming the presidential election. Let's have a conversation about an amendment to get rid of the Electoral College and a national popular vote. But in the meantime, go vote because your vote matters in the elections that matter most. I am so excited to tell you about our sponsor on this week's program, Journey Box Media. Uh, the people at Journey Box are really good friends of mine. They've I've worked on projects with them, and even some of the work you'll see in a few weeks uh, related to my book was done with Journey Box Media. They are amazing people, and I want you to get to know them. Journey Box Media makes engaging short films for the church, and I think it's important because, let's be honest, a lot of church media leans towards really safe, really oversimplified, conservative theology, and frankly, it's really cheesy. It's just so cheesy. And Journey Box Media strives to tell stories in a way that is authentic to the human experience and is inclusive. They deal with topics like social justice and dualistic thinking. And if you go to Journey Box Media, you can search by topics or seasons to see what they've talked about and get digital downloads in high definition in multiple formats. You can purchase films individually, or get unlimited downloads with annual memberships. These are resources for churches that are trying to make a difference in the world today, not trying to look back, not have you know nostalgia for an age that never really existed anyway, but instead trying to make a gospel that is real and relevant to the needs people have now. You can learn more at journeyboxmedia.com. They are really good friends of mine. And I hope you'll take a couple minutes this week to learn more about them. Hey, Mike, this is Josh. Um, I'm a pastor at a Methodist church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and I'll be tackling a a question in a few weeks um, that deals with uh, really the question, why doesn't God just plainly reveal God's self to everybody? It um, comes from a passage in John 14 and kind of the idea, why don't why don't you just, God, why don't you just ride in the, ride in the sky? Um, you know, just show up in everybody's mind or in a dream so that people can't, uh, um, can't deny that you exist. And, uh, as I read the passage, uh, Jesus doesn't even answer the question. He, he's kind of sidesteps it and says, well, this is the way that I will reveal myself. Um, and so I've been thinking about it, wrestling with it. I haven't really found any, uh, good satisfactory, answers, uh, but it's led me down some thought paths about how much a singular experience does um, permanently or produce long-term change in a person's behavior, mindset, thinking, uh, way of life. Uh, And so as I I look at the biblical narrative, you can kind of see this cycle of God doing something or revealing God's self, people changing initially, and then over time kind of drifting back to old patterns. Um, and I've, I've noticed this in my life. I've seen it in friends' lives, uh, families' lives. This, uh, a, an experience, whether it's uh, tragic or um, joyous, just a, a meaningful experience where it produces life change in some meaningful way. Uh, but then there is a drift back to old patterns and old habits. And so it makes me question... Um, if God did show up in the sky, how how much of uh, how much of a meaningful effect would that have um, in changing people's lives? And um, I know your story is largely based in coming back to God in an experience with God that did change you. 
And so um, from your experience and from science, uh, what are ways that people can produce long-term change um, that uh, may be a little more effective than just a one-time experience? I love to hear your thoughts. Um, I love what you do. It really helps me, helps me wrestle with some... um, with my faith and life, and I love it. So keep it up, and God bless. Really interesting question. Let's start with the obvious. Some research has actually shown that extremely powerful spiritual experiences can drive permanent personality and or behavioral changes. A few books I would recommend. One would be How God Changes Your Brain by Andrew Newberg. My go-to recommendation, it seems, for almost every single question on the show. (laughs) His new book, uh, How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain, would really be good, uh, talking about how to seek out spiritual experiences that drive the kind of change you're talking about. Uh, Another book would be When God Talks Back by the anthropologist uh, Tanya Lerman. Those are three books that uh, will all go into that. How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain will have the most to say about it. But some of the nuggets from those other two books are absolutely fascinating and helpful. So definitely recommend those three books. But those kinds of experiences, really radical, like I had on the beach uh, when I when I saw God, they're rare. They don't happen a lot. Uh, they do drive long-term change. My life, it's been a few years now, and my life has been completely changed. How I see the world, how I relate to others, the work that I do. There's not a corner of my life that wasn't changed by that experience. And research validates that. Now, there's more common but still profound spiritual experiences that do drive behavioral change. But interestingly enough, those kind of experiences, often called mountaintop experiences, don't tend to drive lifelong change. And the same is true when we have uh, intentional or directed experiences where we try to make a lot of life change at the same time. And was, you know, why is this the case? Why are habits so tough to break? Why are our patterns of living so hard to shift? Evolution. Whatever you're doing right now works well enough to keep you alive in your situation, in your context, while letting you consume more energy than you spend. And uh, evolution calls that the sweet spot. What we've seen in science is our situation has to be horrible for us to leave it and change suddenly and dramatically. Um, Why do people stay with abusive partners? Why do people eat food that makes them unhealthy? Why do people live sedentary lifestyles? Because if you can get away with it, It's not literally killing you right now. Your brain thinks it's a pretty good deal. Spend a little time watching the wild world, the animal kingdom, even even plants. It's a brutal world out there. Civilization tends to give us the necessities that we're wired to seek out, and we don't like to risk losing the necessities. Our our instincts recognize how good we've got it. in, in some perspectives, don't don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that a person that's in an abusive relationship has it good. I'm saying they have someone in their life. They have food. They have shelter. And part of their lizard brain says, this is good enough. 
this is this will do. That's how our brains work. So lasting change, according to science, if uh, you want to intentionally change your behaviors, actually comes more effectively from small, consistent efforts than sudden sweeping decisions or experiences. So if you want to drive change in your life, how would you do that? If you have a vision for like a big sweeping change, I want to lose 100 pounds or even lose 20 pounds or, or, or write a book or start a new career or start a company, these are huge, audacious goals uh, that are going to be overwhelming, difficult to measure. So you want to break those down into smaller, attainable goals. If you want to lose 100 pounds, the best way to start is by losing 5 pounds. The best way to change your diet is one item at a time. And as you make these goals, you want to write them down. You want to write down your big goal, and you also want to write down the smaller goals you'll take to get there. And then after you've written your goals, you want to think about ways you can measure your progress toward those goals. If your goal is weight loss, that would include getting a scale and standing on it in some measured way, some consistent period of time in between weighings to produce some accountability. And then since your brain will lie to you about the number it saw on a scale, you'll want to write down or record in some way the number that appears on that scale and compare that against the goals. It's really boring. It's really unsexy. It's how humans drive change. Uh, So once you have your goal broken into smaller attainable goals and ways to measure it, Then you decide on times to measure and continually check your progress towards your goal. And here's the important thing. You don't try too many things at once. So if, because weight loss is just a really an easy analogy, let's keep going with it. Uh, You don't on the same day decide to launch uh, a gym regimen, a marathon training, radical diet change. You don't do all those things at once. Maybe for the first week, you weigh yourself every other day. You literally don't do anything but what you do everything like you do now. You just add the routine of weighing yourself. And then you stop drinking soft drinks. And then you stop drinking sweetened drinks at all. And you're letting time pass with you think. And then you start eating a little bit better. And then you start walking. And just one by one, you incrementally add little changes, writing them down and watching what it does to the scale. And that's the way it works. Liquid diets, crash diets, sudden bursts of gym activity or cardio, they don't last. The only way you make change to a human being is to do it slowly and with some form of accountability. When you do the things you say you're going to do, figure out a way to reward yourself. Literally condition yourself. Train yourself like you would train a dog. (laughs) And give yourself some kind of treat, some kind of affirmation when you start to move uh, towards these measurable, attainable, small goals. That's the science of change that lasts. And this is is true for spiritual context. Now, again, if you're like, so how do I have a spiritual experience? I don't want to just adopt habits. You know, that's probably more than I can do in this episode. Other than to say adopting some sort of prayer practice will help. Well, gosh, I've never prayed. I've never meditated. How do I do it? Think back to the answer I just gave you. Write down your goals and go small attainable goals. Tomorrow I will meditate for two minutes. You can meditate for two minutes. You can do it. You can sit down in silence for two minutes. 
and write yourself attainable goals toward a meditation program. And science shows us that meditation will increase your chances of having a deeper spiritual experience, right? That's how it works. Humans are amazing creatures that are trained like any other animal on the planet. (laughs) That's not true. We're trained like any other large-brained vertebrate on the planet. Um, And that's it. That's the secret of, of change at last. This is the system, by the way, I use to change and manipulate my own behaviors. Exactly to the most minute detail, this is the way I do things in my life. This is how I release so many podcasts. It's how I write. That's how the things I do. It's because I've built a, a, a attainable goal with written accountability methodology for how I live my life. And it's boring, but wow, does it feel good to accomplish the things you want to accomplish and to make the changes that you want to change by hacking your brain using science. Our last question came in via email and it reads, Hey Mike, my girlfriend recently broke up with me and I've spent the past month trying to cope with heartbreak and its fallout. I thought I would have started to heal by now, but I still fight to get out of bed in the morning. One of the ways I process deep pain is by skipping straight to an attempted answer of why it happened. I have the tendency to jump into figuring out what I can learn from an experience in order to avoid being forced to sit with the loss. I circumnavigate my emotion by analyzing it as opposed to processing it. Rob Bell recently did a series of podcasts on the biblical book of Lamentations that provided a lot of insight, so I think I'm starting to understand what healthy grief looks like from an emotional and spiritual standpoint. However, From an intellectual standpoint, this experience has sparked an interest in the science of heartbreak. What is the science behind it? What's going on in the brain and what sorts of physical manifestations follow? Also, are there any consequent studies that address practical steps for healing and moving on? Science aside, what's been your own personal experiences with these things? I'm really no longer trying to put my pain under a microscope. I've just become genuinely curious. Thank you so much for taking the time to think about this and offer an answer. I'm so incredibly grateful for your work, the safe space you've created, and the solidarity you provide. Cheers, Jonathan. Well, Jonathan, the first thing I would say as I read your question, I feel like I could have written it to myself. (laughs) Uh, My own personal experience is very similar. Now, I haven't had a heartbreak from a lost relationship in a long time. I have been happily married for 16 years. That really helped me deal with <laughs> romantic loss was not to have any. Um, but this this pattern of intellectualizing loss and grief and pain, avoiding the feelings by jumping to what we'll learn from the experience, you're just describing my natural tendency Oddly enough, I too learned about healthy grief from Rob Bell. (laughs) It was talking with Rob about grief a few times and going to a couple of his events in person and hearing him talk about that led me uh, to go to therapy and learn about grief and caused a real period of growth in my life. So, um, Rob, man, he's a... (laughs) 
it's so funny to me. Like people uh, talk about Rob's theology or whatever, and he's like a pretty orthodox Christian. And <laughs> I don't know anyone who works as hard as just helping people live lives of peace as Rob Bell. It's just we he is the worst boogeyman possible for the church because <laughs> he's just a really good, decent human being who loves Jesus a lot. <laughs> so it's just, it's just, I just sigh every time I see somebody going to Rob Bell tirade, like pick a better adversary, honestly. Anyway, that one's free, a Rob Bell rant in your answer. Um, but like, like you, Rob's talks on grief helped me learn a lot about grief. That led me to the science of grief. Uh, and there is a lot of science on grief and loss. First of all, we call it heartache for a reason. It literally hurts. And by hurts, I don't just mean emotionally. When we've done brain scans on people who are experiencing romantic loss, the parts of their brain that respond to physical pain are also involved in feeling heartache. So if you show someone a picture of their ex and they're in a brain scanner, their pain centers activate. Man, isn't that wild. Now, this thing of, of figuring it all out isn't actually all bad. Uh, introspection is, is an important part of healing. But if you use that as a strategy to avoid your feelings, then it's a psychological defense mechanism called intellectualizing. It's my absolute favorite defense mechanism. I use it all the time. And in my experiences in therapy, uh, my therapist just says something over and over and over to me. But how do you feel? Yes, you've done an excellent job explaining the event in detail. Yes, I can tell you've learned a lot from it. Yes, I see you've gotten insights about the world. But how do you feel? I hate that question. I hate that question. I don't like grief. I don't I don't like ugly crying because I'm heartbroken. I don't like it if someone's made actions that make me angry. But denying those emotions is unhealthy. Using intellectualization to drive them from my mind and turn them into abstract concepts is not healthy. Sometimes we do just have to feel. Why? Well, the core drive behind heartbreak is separation anxiety. We're social animals. We love to be around people. And we fear a loss of social status when we lose relationships, especially romantic relationships, which, by the way, humans are predisposed to like having a mate. We're pair bonding animals. So you're, you're creating these two powerful drives, your social drive and your pair bonding drive, and then you're breaking them both. It creates separation anxiety. It creates a, a type of grief very similar to when a loved one dies. It's a, it's a separation anxiety that can't be reconciled or can't be reconciled easily. And by the way, it's not always a good idea to try to push through breakups. Um, statistically, people who are on again, off again, report much lower levels of relationship satisfaction than people who don't. If you can't make it work, maybe you shouldn't try to make it work. So how do you move on according to science? First of all, talk about it. It is important to talk about it with friends, with uh, with a therapist, if, if you're feeling your feelings are too difficult to handle or it's impairing your ability to live your life. 
but you don't want to wallow in it. You want to talk about it, but you don't want to just, you know, put on records by the cure and sit in the dark and and uh, eat chocolate ice cream. I'm not speaking from experience, I promise. <laughs> uh, you want to talk about it and not wallow in it, but it's really important you start to regain your sense of self. You start to realize who you are separate from that person, your wants, your desires, your experiences, uh, and you want to do things just for you. You want to become socially active. Um, you want to indulge yourself a little bit. Whatever it takes to regain your sense of self is going to help you move on from that breakup and that sense of loss. Which, by the way, Jonathan, I'm sorry you're heartbroken. Um, I really am. You know, you, you asked about my experiences. I handled heartbreak and separation universally terribly when I was younger. I was like the worst ex in the world. I never handled it in a way that was healthy or beneficial for me or the other person. Oh man, if I told you specific stories, I would be too embarrassed to keep doing the podcast. Uh, (laughs) If any of my exes are listening, let me say in all sincerity, I am sorry. (laughs) Wow. I guess my best piece of advice on how to handle breakups is don't handle them like I did. Well, there's another episode of Ask Science Mike that you have listened to. Thank you for doing so. If you've got questions, I'd love to answer them. You can go to AskScienceMike.com to record a question or send a question in via email. Or you can use the hashtag AskScienceMike on social media, and any of those will give you a chance at being on the show. Of course, the people who pick the questions that come on Ask Science Mike are my patrons on Patreon. Those are the people that have made a decision to help make Ask Science Mike financially possible. If you enjoy the show and you want to send me a dollar or two or five a month, just go to AskScienceMike.com and click on the Patreon button to learn more. And you can get perks like early show access or even guaranteeing that you get a question on the show and, of course, the ability to pick the questions that come on to Ask Science Mike. I want to thank uh, Andrew Galucky for his pre-production work on Ask Science Mike. I want to thank Greg Nordine for his uh, production and sound design, and Jeb Botiford for writing the Ask Science Mike theme song. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I'll see you next week.